is part three of our uh, brief series that we're doing entitled, Why uh, We're Not Catholic. And we go once more to Romans chapter 1, verses 16 and 17. The Bible says, For I am not ashamed of the gospel, for it is the power of God for salvation to everyone who believes, to the Jew first and also to the Greek. For in it, in the gospel, the righteousness of God is revealed from faith for faith. As it is written, the righteous will live by faith. Over the past two weeks, in light of the anniversary of the Protestant Reformation, we have been answering the question, uh, why we're not Catholic? We have looked at a timeline of church history through the lens of Christ's promise to build and preserve His church is given to us in Matthew chapter 16 when Jesus said to his disciples, the beginning of the the early church, he said, I will build my church and the gates of hell will not prevail against it. It was a promise that Christ made. He will build his church and he will preserve his church. And although persecution... And division and corruption has threatened to prevail against Christ's church. History has shown us that truth has prevailed over error. That the gospel has gone forth in power. And that even today, true Christianity, according to the Bible, is flourishing all around the world. Last week, we focused a little more specifically on the Protestant Reformation. During a period of time when the Roman Catholic Church had a dominant stronghold on the people's understanding of Christianity, there were some men who rose up and stood for the authority and sufficiency of the Bible over the unbiblical doctrine and practices of the Roman Catholic Church. And as a result, a movement began. It was a gospel movement. The church, as it was known, was being reformed, and the true gospel was being recovered, and Protestant Christianity began to spread like fire. And we emphasize the five Latin phrases or the five solas that the reformers used to summarize the distinction between Protestant theology and Catholic theology. We looked at those solas. Let me Uh, Define them once more for you. They are sola scriptura, meaning scripture alone. Sola gratia, meaning grace alone. Sola fide, meaning faith alone. Sola Christus, meaning Christ alone. And sola dea gloria, the glory of God alone. In other words, what the reformers showed us during this time period is what Christ taught us. And that is sinners are not saved by good works. Sinners are not saved by religious merit. Sinners are saved by grace alone, through faith alone, in Christ alone, according to Scripture alone, and for the glory of God alone. 
Now again, why is all of this so important? Because the most important question in life is, how does a person get right with God? You see, we all have a universal problem. We were born into this world not right with God because of sin. Sin has separated us from the perfect holiness of God. And so the the question of life today is, how do I get right with God? And the reason why we're focusing on this question in relation to Catholicism, and I want you to listen very closely, is because Catholicism identifies itself as Christian. But how we as evangelical Protestant Christians answer that question of how does a person get right with God, which is according to Scripture, and how Roman Catholic Christians answer that question, which is according to their tradition, how we answer those questions are vastly different from one another. It not only has different answers, but in the end, it results in two entirely different eternal destinations. And again, in case you are joining us for the first time in this brief little series this morning, let me just quickly remind you of that distinction between us. The Roman Catholic Church, Catholicism teaches that sinners are saved by merit. That is, we step toward God, and as we step toward God, God will then step toward us. That is, to receive God's grace, we have to earn God's grace. And there's a lot of things that you got to do over the period of your life to, 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 to earn God's grace. And even then, you can't really be entirely sure that you have done so. But Protestant Christianity, Protestantism, we believe according to the Scripture that sinners are saved by God's free, unmerited grace. That we don't step toward God first. No, God steps toward us. That we receive His grace by faith in Him alone. And that nothing else is required. And not only do I receive His grace freely on the basis of what He has done for me through His Son Jesus, but I can be assured of that. I can know it because of faith in the Bible. I want to close this three-part sermon by clarifying some Distinct differences between Protestants and Catholics today. All right? We've talked about history. We've talked about the impact of the Reformation and how that continues on in our understanding, especially of soteriology today. But, but what about now? Has, has anything changed over time? Are there still differences that set us apart? I do this in the spirit again that I prayed, John 17, 17, when Jesus said, sanctify them in the truth. And what is truth? Well, the Word of God is truth. 
And it's vital that we know this because Jesus said in John chapter 8 that it is the truth that sets us free. Free from bondage. Free from confusion. Free from being blinded to the truth of the gospel. But, but, but understand this morning that the God of this world is doing all that He can to blind the minds of unbelievers. To keep them from seeing the truth of the gospel. And He does this through these distinctions that set Protestants apart from Catholics. Now, I will say that the differences are subtle at times, but they are indeed significant. Now, let me be clear. We may agree on a lot of things with those who identify themselves as as Catholic. And the truth is, There are many things related to moral and social issues, the sanctity of life, the sanctity of marriage, things of that nature, that that we can perhaps even come together on for those purposes. But there are enough distinctions between us that truly affect the most important question of life. How does a person get right with God? Now, the tension is not as strong today as it once was. But let me be clear. The doctrine of the Roman Catholic Church has not changed. What has changed is that the church today takes a more ecumenical disposition to the rest of the world and its religions, an approach that has been led strongly by Pope Francis, who in himself desires that the whole world could be unified with the church at Rome. Again, the doctrine has not changed, but they have opened their arms wide in order to embrace the whole world and to bring it into fellowship and communion with Rome. There was a day that they would crown anyone who stood against them as heretics and perhaps even martyr them because of their differences. We have a little shift today because in their view, Roman Catholicism is the pinnacle and completion of all religions, that the more welcoming they are of any faith in the world, that the more the Catholic Church fulfills its purpose, of course, all of which under the guise of the gospel. For example, according to Pope Francis, and let me quote from his lips, He says, non-Catholic Christians, which he would refer to us as non-Catholic Christians, are already united with the Catholic Church in baptism. So, So their position today is, all right, go to your Baptist church, your Methodist church, your Presbyterian church, and get baptized if you want. We just understand that your baptism in that church automatically puts you underneath the authority of Rome. This is from Pope Francis. He also says, Jews don't need to convert. They are already grafted in. And as far as Muslims are concerned, together with us, they adore the one and merciful God. 
You see, again, the pendulum is somewhat swinging in terms of the church's posture. At one point in history, again, non-Catholics are viewed as heretics who deserve death. But now non-Catholics are viewed as estranged brothers and sisters who need to be welcomed home to Rome. Of course, if I was a marketing guy for the Catholic Church, that's my slogan, come home to Rome. The problem is Rome's not home. But this, this is their disposition today. Again, let me make it clear, all of this is hypocrisy at its finest because the Catholic Church has not changed its fundamental doctrines. It has not changed its commitments to the councils that have determined their theology. It adds new layers and colors, but it reshapes them in terms of attitude and tone. And at the core of it, at the core of it, the heart of what Rome stands for has never changed. They're just pushing more and more today to a one-world religious identity that falls underneath their jurisdiction. This is a side note for you who want to do a little bit of homework this afternoon. But to me, it all sounds eerily similar to what will happen in the last days with a one-world religion as recorded for us in Revelation chapter 17. And I leave that to you. Now, in terms of both its ecumenical posture as well as its doctrinal corruption, let me be clear, we are not Catholic. For Catholicism does not root itself in the authority and sufficiency of Scripture. And as we consider these differences that exist even today, let's, let's touch on a few of them. There are more, but let's touch on a few of them, these, these major differences. Here's, here's the first one. Number one, we have a different view of Scripture. We have a different view of Scripture. We're talking about why we're not Catholic. What's the difference between Catholic Christianity and Protestant Christianity. Well, number one, here's where it begins. We have a different view of Scripture. And this is a fundamental difference. Because everything else in life, philosophically, theologically, practically speaking, everything else in life derives from this viewpoint. As we stated last week, as Protestant Christians, as Bible-believing Christians, we affirm sola scriptura, that is, Scripture alone. Only Scripture is God's inspired Word. Let me say that again. Only Scripture is God's inspired Word. And it's the inerrant, sufficient, and final authority for the church as given to us in the 66 books of the Bible. And that ought to do your heart well this morning because you know that you hold in your hands, whether it's a physical copy or an electronic copy, whatever you take home with you, ride with you, read from you, you know that what we have in these 66 books of the Bible is the inspired Word of God. And everything we need to know is to come from this We affirm that. Scripture alone. However, Catholics take a different view of Scripture. For instance, the Catholic Bible has added to the canon of 66 books that we have with the Apocrypha or books like Tobit, Judith, Maccabees, others. 
So we see them adding to the canon of Scripture, identifying it as Scripture. Uh, Additionally, the Catholic Church has elevated their tradition to be equal authority as the Scripture. So we have the extra books of the Bible that they've added, and they've branded it as the Catholic Bible. We have their traditions that the council has established, and it is viewed as equal to the authority of the Bible. And then there's what we call the magisterium, which is a structural hierarchy, starting with the Pope and passing down into the House of Cardinals, the view is like this, that when the Pope makes official doctrinal pronouncements or definitive interpretations, he and his word is to be revered as infallible. That what the Pope says in his official pronouncements and interpretations is to be viewed as equal to Scripture. Now, with this difference, we springboard into an array of doctrinal confusion. And I point that out because much of what the Catholic Church emphasizes is not found in Scripture. It's found rather in the interpretations and pronouncements of the Pope and the councils and their traditions. And what does the Bible itself say about this? Well, in 2 Peter chapter 1, no prophecy of Scripture comes from someone's own interpretation. For no prophecy, the Bible says, was ever produced by the will of men. But men spoke from God as they were moved by the Holy Spirit of God. So we have in our hands the inspired word of God because God moved upon these men to write in its complete form what God intended to be his final authority. But any religion, any ideology that adds their tradition or their scriptures or their interpretations to be viewed as equal authority is false. It is heretical. And it blurs the true gospel message of Jesus. This is not just a difference between Protestants and Catholics. It's the difference between even a lot of Baptist churches. That we look to Scripture and Scripture alone as our sufficient and final authority. Not our traditions. Not our preferences. Not even at times our own interpretations. But what does the Word of God say? For we speak where the Word of God speaks. We stay silent where the Bible is silent. We shout where the Bible shouts. We whisper where the Bible whispers. We are a word-centered, Bible-driven church. And that is at the heart of true Christianity. So where do these differences begin? It begins with Scripture. We we have a different view of Scripture. Secondly, we have a different view of justification. We're talking about some of the differences between Catholicism and Protestantism. We have a different view of Scripture. We have a different view of justification. Now, what does justification mean? It's a word describing what it means to be right with God, okay? Have you been justified? That is, have you been made right with God? It is the moment that God legally declares a guilty sinner as perfectly righteous. And that is the beauty of the gospel of salvation. That when I come to God empty-handed, trusting in Christ alone for the redemption of my sin, He justifies me. 
He makes my guilty standing as a sinner go away. And he replaces it with the perfect righteousness of Jesus Christ. According to Scripture, that justification cannot take place through one ounce of our righteousness. A perfect, sinless righteousness must be imputed into us. We cannot attain this. We cannot earn it. We cannot take a million steps toward God. And he finally give in and say, all right, I'll let you buy. No, there is only one way that we can be justified. And that is if God's righteousness is imputed into our lives. And that is why Jesus Christ came to this earth. We are justified. We are made right with God, not on account of our righteousness, which is flawed by sin always, but because of the sinless righteousness of Jesus Christ that has been freely given to us through faith alone in His atoning sacrifice on the cross. Here's where the subtle differences bring significant conclusions. Because Catholics teach that justification is a process. It begins with faith, but you have to keep stepping toward God. You have to keep walking toward Him by merit, by your righteousness, in order to receive that final and complete justifying grace. Again, I, I, I don't want to present them in a negative light. Let me rephrase that. I don't want to present them without letting you hear exactly what they say. Okay? So this is not just me saying, they do this, they do this, they do this. Let's hear it. Let let me me just give you five statements on justification alone from the Catholic canon. This is what they view as equal to Scripture. I gave you the first one last week. Let me give it to you again because it's extremely significant and important. The Catholic canon number nine says, if anyone says that a sinner is justified by faith alone, all right, we say that, meaning that nothing else is required to cooperate in order to obtain the grace of justification, let him be anathema, let him be cursed. So we talk about this ecumenical movement that the church is trying to bring under the umbrella of their authority, but the doctrine has not changed. This is what they still subtly teach. But what does the scripture say about that? Ephesians 2 8. For by grace you have been saved through faith. It is not of your own doing, it is the gift of God. It is not the result of works. All right, here's another quote from the Catholic canon, number 12. If anyone says that justifying faith is nothing else than confidence in divine mercy, which removes sin for Christ's sake, let him be anathema. Listen, I believe that justifying faith according to the Scripture is confidence in the mercy and grace of God. And when I put my confidence in the mercy and grace of God, guess what God promised to do? Remove my sin for the sake of His Son, Jesus Christ. John 1, 12, to all who receive Him, who believe in His name, He has given the right to become children of God who were born not of blood, nor the will of the flesh, nor the will of man. But of God. That is, God imputes this righteousness. He remits our sin for Christ's sake. 
Here's Catholic canon number 14. If anyone says that a man is absolved from his sins and justified because he firmly believes that he is by faith alone, let him be anathema. Well, again, what does Scripture say? Romans 5.1. Therefore, since we have been justified by faith, we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ. Catholic canon number 24. If anyone says that good works are merely the fruits and signs of justification obtained, but not the cause of its increase, let him be anathema, cursed. Well, this is, this is what we teach, right? It is not good works that gain us the grace of God. It is faith alone. But the Bible makes it very clear that after we come to Christ by faith, that the Holy Spirit moves in, he becomes that comforter, he is with us, and he helps us to grow in the fruits of good works that are not because we need to be saved. They are the result of salvation in our lives. Take Jesus' word for it. Uh, John 15, abide in me and I in you. As the branch cannot bear fruit by itself unless it abides in the faith, how, in the vine. How do we abide in the vine? By faith. So Jesus says, neither can you unless you abide in me. I am the vine. You are the branches. Whoever abides in me and I in him, he it is that will bear much fruit. For apart from me, you can do nothing. Let me give you one more. Catholic canon number 30. If anyone says that after receiving the grace of justification, that guilt is so removed and the debt of eternal punishment so blotted out to every repentant sinner that no debt remains in this world or in purgatory before the gates of heaven can be opened, let that man be anathema. In other words... If anyone tells you that it is paid in full by the sacrifice of Jesus Christ, that is a cursed thought. That our sins cannot be blotted, all, blotted out completely by Christ's sacrifice alone. We have to do things, maybe even go to purgatory for a little while to make sure that it's all completely removed. Because Christ's sacrifice is not enough. It's important, but it's not enough. What does the scripture say? Colossians chapter 2. And you, oh, this is so good. I'm not a shouter, but I might. <laughs> and you who were dead in your trespasses, God made alive together with him, having forgiven all your sins by canceling the record of debt that stood against us with its legal demands. He has set it aside. Nailing it to his cross. The issue always comes down to what are we going to believe? Are we going to believe the Bible or are we going to believe tradition? And upon that understanding of justification, we have to come to the conclusion, and I don't mean this in any mean-spirited way, but just to be able to tell you the truth. Jesus said, sanctify them in the truth. The word is truth. And what does the word show us? The word shows us that the Roman Catholic gospel is a false gospel. It's not the true gospel. To be justified in the sight of God is to possess the righteousness of Christ. And to possess the righteousness of Christ, we must trust in Him alone. Period. I love Titus chapter 3. Titus chapter 3. Let me read it to you. 
For we ourselves were once foolish. Anybody in here once foolish? Oh, yeah. We were once foolish. We were disobedient. We were led astray. We were slave to our passions and pleasures, passing our days in malice and envy. We were hated by others, and we even hated others ourselves. Just a little summary of life before Christ. A dreadful thing. But when the goodness and loving kindness of God our Savior appeared, He saved us. He saved us from that foolish, disobedient, slaves to passions and pleasures, that hatred. He saved us from that. Not because of works done by us in righteousness. He saved us not because of works done in us in our righteousness. But according to His own mercy. By the washing of regeneration and renewal of the Holy Spirit, whom he poured out on us richly through Jesus Christ, so that being justified by his grace, we might become heirs to the hope of eternal life. We have a completely different view of Scripture. We have a completely different view of justification. Thirdly, I wrote down here, we have a different view of the sacraments. We have a different view of the sacraments. Now, what we as Protestants primarily call ordinances of the Catholic uh, ordinances of the church, the Catholic Church calls these things sacraments. Now, let me, let me help you because the word itself is synonymous. There's nothing wrong with saying sacraments when referring to the Lord's Supper or baptism. They're really synonymous terms, but the application of them in those contexts are different. This is why we lean more as Protestants using the word ordinance because of the application of the words. For example, a biblical understanding of sacraments or ordinances is that these God-ordained, that's where the ordinances come from, these God-ordained practices that the church is commanded to follow are to be done as symbols of our justification. We explain it a lot in the similar terms of of, of the wedding ring. The wedding ring does not make us married. It's the vow. It's the commitment. Okay? The wedding ring is a symbol of that commitment, of that vow that we've made. Okay? Same is true within the realm of the ordinances. These ordinances that God has commanded the church to follow, they are symbols, symbols of our justification. Now, we as Protestants, we recognize two of these ordinances or sacraments. One is baptism, and the other is the Lord's Supper, communion. However, the Catholic Church views sacraments much differently. In their doctrine, sacraments are not symbols of justification. They are a means where God's grace over sin is further received. Are you following me? So when we baptize a person, as we will, I think, next Sunday or the Sunday after, we'll baptize a couple more young people. They are not getting saved at that moment of baptism Their sins are not being washed away. We're baptizing them on the basis of what Christ has told us. This is a symbol to let everybody know you've put your faith in me and your sins have been washed away. Okay? Same thing with the Lord's Supper. We don't eat the bread or drink of the cup in order to further forgive us or to receive more of God's grace because maybe we're missing out on some. No, we we drink of the wine, we eat of the bread because in so doing we are reminding ourselves and the community of us in the gospel 
that Christ has done this for us. Okay, Catholic perspective is different. They do these things as a means to receive more of God's grace. In other words, again, the sacrifice of Jesus atoning for sin is not enough. But if you follow these sacraments, then your sins can be further forgiven and your guilt can be further removed. The Catholic Church has seven sacraments. We have two, they have seven. There's baptism, of course, which doesn't take place necessarily upon the profession of faith. You can baptize them as early as seven, eight days old. And that begins the process of sins being removed. It doesn't complete it. It begins the process. And then there's confirmation, which is the official joining of membership to the Catholic Church, which is the big one. The big one. Because nobody's coming back to Rome in that regard unless you identify yourself in the confirmation of the church. There's Holy Communion or the Lord's Supper or what they refer to as the Eucharist and Mass. Every time we take of the Supper, every time, not we, I'm talking about the Catholics, this is what they would say. Every time we take of the Supper, every time we go to Mass, we are re-sacrificing the body of Christ all over again so that our ongoing sin can be removed. There's confession, that's the sacraments. Penance, going to the priest, doing things to earn forgiveness of sin. That marriage is a sacrament. That is, if you, as a good Catholic, Get married in the church. That just further positions yourself up the level of God's grace and forgiveness. There's the holy orders, which is just the priestly service. And then, of course, the anointing of the sick. Viewed in terms of helping remove sin by anointing one of these are the seven sacraments. And again, these sacraments in the Catholic Church are not symbols of faith. Instead, each one is viewed in addition to faith as a way to receive saving grace from sin. But again, with each one of these, I'm trying to show you Scripture. Romans chapter 4 and verse 4. To the one who does not work, the implication here is, to the one who does not work to earn grace, that does not work to earn salvation, that does not work to have his sins forgiven, but believes in him who justifies the ungodly, his faith is counted as righteousness. It is not faith plus the sacraments that gives us the righteousness of Jesus. It is faith alone that gives us the righteousness of Jesus. We have a different view of Scripture. We have a different view of justification. We have a different view of the sacraments. And then let me just give you this final one before we close up. We have a different view of what happens after death. We have a different view of what happens after death. Now, from the tradition of their extra writings, but not from Scripture. Catholicism developed a doctrine called purgatory. Now, some of you feel like maybe this is purgatory, but I promise you it's not. (laughs) There are worse things than the sound of my voice. Purgatory, according to Catholic doctrine, is an intermediate state after death. It's not hell. And they make that very, very clear. I want to make sure that you understand that. They do not view purgatory as hell. Rather, it is a place where a person, after death, goes to be purified further by temporary punishment in order to satisfy the full payment of their sins. So it's an intermediate state. 
Doctrinally speaking, you die, you go to purgatory. And whatever was not taken care of here by works of your own earning and merit, you're going to give a little bit of time in purgatory to make that transition final before you are allowed into heaven. Purgatory is also an inclusive place. It's not just for Catholics. In fact, let me read to you from the canon of the Catholic Church. Here's what it says. Those who do not know the gospel or the church, but who nevertheless seek God with a sincere heart and try in their actions to do His will as they know it, those too may achieve eternal salvation. And the context is by going to purgatory. Now, how do they believe that a person gets out of purgatory, that is further purified? How do we ensure that whether someone who doesn't know the gospel, doesn't know Catholicism, or wasn't working hard enough, how do we make sure, you know, great, 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 great grandfather, whoever, gets out and is purified wise there? Well, one, you can pray for the dead. There is not one verse of Scripture in all the Bible that says we are to pray for the dead. Now, that's another sermon, another doctrinal understanding later. And I'm going to show you here in just a moment why, after death, it is sealed. But according to their doctrine, you can pray for the dead. Another part of it is you can pay indulgences on behalf of the dead. Now, at one point in the history of the Catholic Church, which was one of the big underminings of the Reformation, was that these priests were taking advantage of the people by making indulgences exclusively something that you purchase with money. It's changed a little bit over time. It's not so much something that you just buy these days. It's something that you can earn. You can earn indulgences on behalf of the dead. So it's more a system of earning, although giving is a part of that, by the way. It's a part of that. And the more you earn these indulgences, the better shot at this loved one or this friend of, of getting out of purgatory. So, so once again, we have issues regarding justification, don't we? That in Catholicism, sin is not fully paid for in Christ. I cannot speak of that enough here. That is the major distinction. In the Catholic doctrine... Sin is not fully paid for in Christ. So it must be further paid for somewhere else by someone else. And biblically speaking, there's not even a hint of such a place existing. But what Scripture does say in 2 Corinthians chapter 8 is this. To be absent from the body is to be present with the Lord. That's the Bible. That's not coming from tradition. That's not coming from councils. That's not trying to make you feel better about your sin and guilt by th- saying, hey, live it up, do whatever you want to, and after this life you're going to get some more opportunities in purgatory. No, 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 no. Th- this is the truth. If you are a believer in Christ and faith alone, that the moment you take your last breath, your next breath is in the presence of Jesus Christ. And the opposite is true in relation to the unbeliever. To be absent from this earth to be present under the wrath of God. 
Now, you understand there are a host of other differences, right? And some of you who have been in the Catholic Church understand that. We could talk about confessing to a priest instead of trusting Christ as the one mediator between God and man. We could talk about praying to departed saints who are believed to be able to bring us more grace and help. We could talk about venerating Mary, the mother of Christ, as queen over all things, as the intercessor for the church who brings salvation to sinners. Of course, in all of these things, there are the relics and the icons and the what are beautiful cathedrals all around the world, venerating them, unfortunately, to a place of idolatry. Well, sometimes the differences seem subtle, but as I've said, they are massively significant. And I want you to understand my heart. Over the last three weeks, I have not one time desired to make this a Catholic bashing session. That is not my intention, and I hope that you have felt that from me. I have friends and neighbors whom I love and respect as human beings who are Catholic. Some of you have children and parents who are Catholic. Some of you are married to people who still identify themselves as Catholic. And it is true. In some ways, we can work together with Catholics on moral and social issues in this world. But the sad reality is the Catholic Church, under the banner of Christianity, has suppressed the truth of the gospel. They do not have the true gospel. And many of our loved ones and neighbors are being deceived this very hour into thinking that it all depends upon them. However, the only way we can be right with God is by faith alone and the righteousness of Christ alone. And if we do not come to Christ this way, by faith alone, in Christ alone. Look, in, look right here. If we do not come to Christ that way, he does not allow us to come to him. That's why this is such a big deal. We must come to him alone. Of course, our neighbors and co-workers, our family who are so close to the truth, but yet at the same time so far away. And these differences matter. For this is about the authority of Scripture. It's about the purity of the gospel. It's about the eternity of sinners. We go back to the question we've asked for the last three weeks. How does a person get right with God? How can you get right with God today? By grace alone. Through faith alone. In Christ alone. Where, where did you get that? From Scripture alone. And it's for the glory of God alone. Come to faith in Christ and leave with the confident assurance that you have been made right with God for all of eternity. This is why it matters. And this is why we're not Catholic. We have two different conclusions as to how a person gets right with God. And so my question to you this morning is which conclusion are you going to rest your eternity in? Human tradition or the word of God? Those, Romans 1.17, we close with this. Those who have been made right with God are those who are living by faith. Let's stand together with me.